You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. There was a tea party in the Boston Harbor, as you know, a long time ago. I'm not going to talk about that. But I had a tea party in my office this morning, and I spilled tea all over my Bible. I want to recommend not doing that, because it took all the gloss off my black leather Bible. Just unbelievable. And some of my pages are stuck together this morning. So uh, anyway, so much for tea. Hey, we're in Colossians chapter 1. You can join me there in our third installment in the series. We want to look today at a, as you heard, read already, the tremendous passage that describes who Jesus really is. You know, uh, Peter uh, was asked by Jesus, who do people say that I am? And Peter, of course, responded, Lord, uh, Uh, Many say this or that, but who do you say, Peter? Well, you are the Christ, and so we understand that text. Uh, Interesting that Barna did a survey, I think it was in 2019, did a survey asking that question, is Jesus God? And I was surprised, 56% of those who answered the survey said that Jesus was God, and I find that very interesting. Uh, I did a a kind of a search on uh, on Google to uh, find out how many uh, Hollywood Actors and actresses were uh, what, what their thoughts were about Jesus. And again, it was interesting that uh, uh, I was surprised how, how many actors and actresses would say that Jesus was God. Uh, and yet, even though that's true, and I could name some of the names, you'd know many of them in some of the newer movies today. And yet, with all of that, I think it's interesting that unless they would believe in him as God by pledging their lives to that statement, uh, I would say that they don't believe in God. Jesus as God, right? I, that, that's not the case. Uh, I just say that because I think we can tell by certain people's lives that they don't really believe that. What we believe about Jesus by conviction about him being God is going to do everything in our lives to affect who we are, whether we are on one side or the other of that statement. And so this text was... Uh, in, in this letter was written by Paul for the very issue that he wanted to restate who Jesus Christ is, but he also wanted to redefine the, the very basis by which anyone would say that I am saved. I am eternally saved. I'm able to be a citizen of heaven one day based on the fact that they believe in Jesus Christ as the one who professes to be God. And I want to just say today that if, if a person doesn't believe that Jesus is God, you can't possibly be a Christian. You can't have any guarantee of heaven. Uh, and yet it's a shame how many have 
declared that he's not. Uh, Bart Ehrman, who is professor of religious studies at UNC Chapel uh, in Chapel Hill, uh, he's uh, written many books. He did his undergrad at Moody Bible Institute as an evangelical Christian. But he transferred over to Princeton. And during his studies there, he decided through his own study that Jesus is not God. The Bible is not trustworthy. The Gospels have discrepancies. And so he's written many books to disprove all the things that he once said he believed in. That's irritating to me on one level, and yet it's understandable because I believe that even though he went to Moody to be a pastor, he was not converted to Christ. And we're going to see why that's true in just a bit from the text. But when someone says that Jesus is not God and they are saying that the, the reason they're saying that's because of all the discrepancies in the Gospels, I find that very interesting. And we're going to look at some of those reasons this morning of why that's so ridiculous to say that. But anyway, let's, let's take a look at the text that we are in this morning. We pick it up at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And so right off the bat, Paul's going to give some sweeping statements, really three sweeping statements in this text, declaring the scope of Christ's supremacy. And so in verse 15, he begins by talking about the deity of Christ when he says he is the image of the invisible God. Uh, over in, don't turn, but I'll just tell you over in John 1, verse 18, there's that statement that no one has seen God at any time. Uh, Jesus, in chapter 14 of John, in verse 9, made the statement that he who has seen me has seen the Father. And so uh, the Lord is not, uh, and Paul is not saying that in, in the fact of being in the image of God, the image of the invisible God, he's not saying that Jesus is the uh, image in some sense of a material or physical sense. That's not what that word means. The word is icon. We get our word icon. It, it has to do with a reflection. Uh, so Jesus is a reflection of God as, a, uh, uh, as in, a, in a body of water or in a mirror, there's a reflection. Uh, and yet there's two distinct persons. Uh, so he's not in a physical sense exactly like God, but he is the likeness of God in the sense of the reflection of what it means. Uh, that word also not only means reflection, it also means manifestation. So in a sense, he's God's nature, God's character, God's very being perfectly revealed in him uh, in this distinct person who is in a sense, a reflection, but two distinct persons. It's very difficult to even put that into human words. Jesus made the statement in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. And uh, just to understand that uh, as he went on in that same chapter and said that uh, if you believe the, uh, the works that I do, then even if you don't believe the works I do, believe this, that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. There's this sense of two persons, but yet two in one, which is very complex and yet very much declared. So, you know, the Lord Jesus spoke about being able to give others eternal life. If I'm going to think about him being a deity, I have to understand what he said. So in John 10, 28, he made the statement that he gives life. He gives eternal life. And uh, I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 2, because in that text, he's going to say something that sets 
the scribes off in a very bad place in Mark chapter 2. As they're watching him, observing him, trying to figure out who he really is. And in this text, you know, there's this fellow who's lame and four friends carry this lame man, this uh, paralytic to be healed. And they find a crowd they can't get through. So they go up on the roof of this house and they cut through the roof and they drop this fellow down right into the uh, presence of Jesus. Verse four, when they could not come near him, they says they so they they broke through and they let him down. Uh, the bed uh, on which the paralytic was lying. And when Jesus saw their faith, verse 5, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sons are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts. So they're not saying this out loud, but they're thinking it. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Well, who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, of course, that's the very issue. <laughs> No one can forgive sins but God. And even as they're whispering this to themselves, it says in verse 7, or as verse 8, but immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Can you imagine their fear when he tells them what they're thinking? Which is easier to say, uh, a paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise and take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up his bed, went out of the presence of them all, and so that all were amazed and glorified, saying, we never saw anything like this. Well, of course. He's God. Uh, interestingly enough, too, that uh, as we process this, even as these men were processing what he was what he was saying and what he was doing, they were appalled that he would even consider forgiving sins. A distinguishing element of all cults is that cults certainly want to deny the deity of Jesus. He's not God in terms of a cult. And this is one of the things that Satan despises most of all about God and about Jesus. He's so jealous to be God himself. And so to understand who the son is, and of course, Satan knows, uh, has always been an issue. So he's always trying to uh, demean and defile and, and just ruin the reputation of Jesus any way he can. But there's one thing that Satan cannot do. He cannot usurp the authority and the Godship of Jesus Christ, the mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, Satan is not going to take away the deity of Jesus, unto whom every knee one day will bow and every tongue confess. Uh, he's not going to take away from who Jesus is by the fact that uh, everyone will say that he's King of Kings and Lord of Lords one day and stand before him. Even Satan will have to do that. So in this text, when he begins in Colossians when he says this statement uh, we must understand what he's saying here he is before all things or so, sorry uh, I want to go back he is the image of the invisible God uh, the firstborn over all creation and so he begins to talk about uh, the issue of creation itself as Paul writes this the firstborn over all creation which has been a stumbling block for many some want to say that phrase means Jesus was created and yet that's not true, and it's not even what the phrase means, but that's what often 
will be said. The, the word firstborn is not just that which means first child born. It can be, it's used for that, but it's also used in terms of first in rank or first in honor. So again, when Jesus was in a conversation with some men in John chapter 8, i got to take you there, verse 58, Jesus made the statement that we've all heard preached many, many times when he basically gave uh, an understanding of who he is as these men were trying to figure out again who he was, speaking about Abraham. And as they're talking about Abraham, the Lord, in, in the, the last couple of verses of chapter 8, uh, makes this statement to them, uh, look at verse 54. If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say he is your God, yet you have not known him. But I know him, and if I say I do not know him, I should, shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus responded, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. How serious was that statement? They took up stones to throw at him. They uh, heard him say the very name of God, the, the name that's above every name, that the name of God was said that in the Old Testament. It was a name that you would never say out loud. And here's Jesus saying, before Abraham was born, I am. That word is the, uh, actually in, in, the, in the explanation of that title, which is really what it is. It's him saying, uh, I exist, I have always existed, and always will exist. That's really what it means. He is above all. He's first in rank over all that exists. And that's what he was saying in that statement, which made them so livid, so angry, that he was declaring himself to be God. This professor who wants to say that Jesus is not God has not well studied the scriptures. In Hebrews uh, 1, 5, don't turn, I'm just going to say it. There's a phrase in that text which has also stumped uh, a few, uh, where God says, you are my son, talking about Jesus. Today I have begotten you. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. And when that statement was made, it was a statement declaring position for the purpose of redemption. It wasn't saying that he was a, a, a created being, but that he took on flesh when he came to this planet. He left heaven's glory, Philippians chapter 2, and he came and took on flesh, and he became a servant, a human being in the flesh. Jesus did this. It was a positioning himself. Uh, it was sort of uh, an act that he committed uh, that indeed allowed him to be the firstborn of this, what we call a new covenant through his birth, death, and resurrection. So yes, if you want to call him firstborn, that would be the only way you would understand that. When uh, he rose from the dead, he became the one who righteously then allowed all of us to have the plan of salvation work in our lives so that I will be resurrected one day as well, only because of him and what he's done for us. Verse 16 comes along and Paul then adds this, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth. And so now he's, he's changing gears here. He's going to uh, uh, the fact that Jesus is not only uh, the one who is uh, God, but he's now the creator. And uh, he's saying here he created everything that's in heaven and that is on earth. 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. What a statement. In uh, Hebrews 1, verse 2, uh, there's an addition to this, through whom also he made the worlds, verse 3, upholding all things by the word of his power. I was processing all of this this week and realizing again, no wonder the world wants to destroy the Bible. Because the word of God is declaring this truth that Jesus is not only God, but creator, which has messed up with so many minds. Because if this is true, then everything I have not believed or everything that I thought I believed about Jesus is called into question. And I have to respond to either one or another truth. He's either who he says he is or he's not. And if he's not and I declare that, then he says I'm going to go to hell. And I say that it's, if someone says, oh, I say it's not true, as this professor's doing, uh, that's the only way he can handle uh, dealing with this is to simply say it cannot be true. So he's trying to find all kinds of reasons why that can verify his belief so that he can validify the fact that he can say that there's no hell. You see, in Jesus, we have to decide that. In verse 16 and 17, uh, when we read that verse, uh, we're realizing here that there's no question. The Bible clearly denotes that Jesus Christ is creator. And if nothing else, in John 1, as you all know this text, in John chapter 1, verse 1 uh, through verse 3, uh, one of the most common texts of all, listen to what it says. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the word, verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ was co-creating with the Father, if you want to say it that way. And that's so uh, consistent with the entire, all the Gospels are saying the same thing. Who else, could, who else could stand in a boat and say, peace be still and calm the storm and calm the waves instantly? Who else could walk on water that is verified by the men in that boat who were scared to death and then call someone out to join him? Uh, who else could raise people from the dead, even his friend Lazarus? And so many witnesses were there to verify that that event took place. And who else could do these things but God and God in the flesh, who is Jesus Christ? And aren't you glad today that he is God? Because if he's not God, he can't forgive your sins. Paul wanted to make this clear uh, to these folks who were new believers, a new congregation, if you will, in the city of Colossae. And he had never been there. So he's wanting to send this letter to sort of counter all the mistruths that these folks were hearing. We'll get more into that in the next week or so. There was Jewish opposition to Paul. There were many critics, uh, philosophic critics and others who were, in a, who were opposed to what Paul was teaching 
And what this town was hearing from those who got saved in Paul's ministry, Epaphras and others. And so these are people countering uh, those who are not perhaps even educated, who are leading the church down this road. And so the educational crowd wanted to thwart these truths with their own truths. And followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus Christ must understand this. I mean, today, you must believe this truth. Otherwise, Jesus slides downward from deity to a created being and nullifies his right to be sin's forgiver. You must understand that. Well, not only is he the creator, but notice what it says. He's the sustainer. Very interesting uh, idea here that we read uh, in Paul's text. And so he says here, for by him... All things were created that are in heaven. We read that. Uh, And then he goes on to say, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist, in verse 17. All things consist. He's the sustainer. That means that, uh, you know, everything's held together by him. And I find this uh, so difficult to process. Uh, if you just pause and try to just understand that, it's, you're talking subatomic uh, atomic particles, you're talking uh, the unreachable end of the universe, you're talking about things that just uh, uh, blow our mind from how can billions of galaxies containing billions of stars and how can they all function and operate and move within a certain orbit and nothing collides? And how can someone keep all of that in in, in sort of a syn- synchronistic uh, kind of movement? How, how can a God, uh, you know, keep our lives and, and protect us, even ourselves, from all kinds of things that take place and do all of that at the same time? And it's so beyond our understanding that in some way, perhaps it more distances ourselves from God in some way, but yet God wants to be a personal friend in your life, a, a personal God, an intimate God, And he chooses to offer himself that way, which is mind-boggling. Paul wrote in Romans 11, 36, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So it's beyond, beyond. And yet as these new believers are processing this, what, what Paul's wanting them to sort of solidify in their mind is that salvation by this God is possible. Salvation by this God is real. Salvation did happen to me when I put my faith in this one. And now they're hearing just how fantastically great he actually is. A third thing that he says in this text in verse 18 is a statement about the church. And he's talking directly to them. This is a new church body. And he's saying, and he is the head of the body. So he's involved in your lives. He's the head of your body, the the church, he says, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, uh, the one who rose from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Understand who he is. See, there, there were, we'll get into this in another week, but there were those coming in saying that Jesus is not God. Uh, today, we still have the same voices saying that. And in this new crowd, as they were hearing this by, you know, uh, intellectual men in, the, in, their, in their cities uh, coming in and trying to sort of pull them back from these beliefs. 
And here's Paul trying to reassure them. By the way, Paul's very educated, so uh, they're getting uh, they're getting truth. But this truth is so consistent with itself as they process this. Others were coming in with truths they couldn't prove, truths that were uh, mysteries that they didn't even reveal. And uh, it goes on and on and on. But here, Paul's just giving them the straight up truth. And he's just saying, this one is, this is who he is. This is the unbelievable character and nature of of the God that you're uh, following and the one you're placing your trust in. And he is the head of the body of the church and so on. He should be the one that receives preeminence. I like... uh, in verse 19, where he says, for it pleased the father. Now he takes them back to, okay, let's talk about the father. Let's talk about God for a moment. For it pleased the father that in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. That word is pleroma. That, that word has to do with uh, uh, the fullness of God. The, the, he's absolutely fully God, not part God, not Maybe he's a part of God. Maybe he's perfected his life to be more like God. No, he is God in his fullness, that the fullness of God dwells in him. Remember when uh, Paul wrote uh, in, in Philippians and he talks about Jesus leaving heaven and he talks about the fact that who did not consider it a robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant. And so, so even the Apostle Paul uh, is consistent with what he's saying about Jesus Christ, that he set aside uh, some of his attributes to be a human being and step into time and space. Yes, but he is still the one who, because of who he is and what he's done and the, uh, the wonder of that, he should be preeminent in our hearts. That's why in this church we always say Jesus Christ is first in our lives. He's first in this church. If he's not first of your life, something's wrong if you say you're a Christian. And no one can deny that Jesus is God and call on him and say he's Savior. That's impossible. So we come to uh, uh, verse 19 and 20, and it says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. The spotlight shifts from the deity of Christ to the death of Christ and the awful yet wonderful sacrifice that he made for us on Calvary's cross. When Jesus uh, was dying, you can read in Luke uh, uh, in Luke's Gospel 23, chapter 23, at verse, I think it's 44, was Jesus, as Jesus was dying, it says that darkness fell upon the earth. For, from, uh, for three hours, there was just darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. And as that darkness was, was there, it was shortly at the end of that three-hour span that suddenly, the, as the darkness was looming, that the veil that was in the temple was ripped in two. And, and I just get the uh, sort of the idea here that heaven and earth were sort of drawing a gasping breath as this took place. There must have been a silencing for a moment when God, the creator of the universe, was killed. And I can imagine that, you know, there was this sort of silence as the darkness was hovering over everything. And 
suddenly that veil was ripped in two. And can you imagine the shrieking cry of, of Lucifer as he is beginning to get the idea that this was all intentional. This was God's plan. Uh, I can imagine as he's realizing how it's all falling apart at the scenes, what he had planned because he thought he'd killed God, but he hadn't done that at all. Jesus, uh, in that unspeakable moment, was simply finishing what he started. So a question rises up. Uh, actually, uh, I want to go back and remind us that in this, t- in this verse I read, something's there that's just very interesting. It says that uh, in verse 20, by him to reconcile all things to himself. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but watch this. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. I got to thinking about that. Why would Jesus need to reconcile heaven? You know, I understand he's reconciling me. I understand he's reconciling sinners to himself. I understand that this world is filled with sin, and so he's bringing us back into relationship through what he's done on the cross. But why that reference to reconciling heaven? And it's easy for us to sometimes just not think about this. But heaven was defiled as well and is defiled by the evil one who goes in the presence of the very Son of God and accuses him day and night on behalf of those uh, faults of the saints. He's called the accuser of the brethren. Are you, 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 you realize this. As he steps into glory, he's always doing that. Going back to the book of Job, when uh, he appeared before God and pointed out Job and, uh, and to the very issue now of even to this day, still, when you mess up, uh, the accuser loves to uh, identify those saints who fall into sin and mess up their testimonies. And he can sort of point to you and say, I told you so. He's not worth it. Look what he did. He's not really a, a con- convert of yours. He's not really following you. And that's what he specializes in. So much so that we read in Revelation 21, verse 1, that God's going to destroy heaven and earth. He's going to purify where the evil one has given his input and his presence. And sometimes we just don't think about this. It says, I, as John read that, he says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. He's reconciling all of us to himself, and he's going to reconcile heaven. Verse 21 uh, just tells us that, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. In that day and in that moment when you and I gave our lives to Christ and we asked him to forgive us of sin, he did this wonderful, miraculous thing. Only a God could do this to reconcile sinners and make them uh, pure and holy and righteous before his presence so that he can bring us to himself. Why he would do that, I still don't understand it. Verse 22 says, in the body of his flesh, he's doing this. Through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Paul adds a little something to that over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 
verse 23 and 24 as he's ending that letter. He says to believers, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. See, again, uh, even him knowing to, at this point in juncture, to qualify that Jesus is the God of peace. Qualify, may he sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he has done for us, and he goes on and says, now he who calls you is faithful who also will do it. I love that. Because there are many times in my own journey as a Christian when I have doubted my faith at times, when I have struggled because of sin that I would question my own uh, Christianity, my own salvation at times. And here again, we're reading here that, wait a minute now, it's God who does this work in me. He sanctifies me completely. My whole spirit, soul, and body are preserved, blameless, not by anything I've done. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. So he does that, not me. This is God. Somebody says, Jesus is not God. Well, if he's a man, he can't do that. He can't guarantee me anything. Well, then we come to something else that's interesting, which is in verse 23. I call this conditions for confidence. Notice what he says here. He says, if indeed you continue. So he's talking about what he's done. He's reconciling us uh, through his body, his flesh, obviously through Calvary's cross, with the purpose of when we place our faith in him to become holy and blameless and above reproach, which is the work he does in us. But then he says, if Indeed, you continue in the faith. And all of a sudden, it sounds like there's a doubt about this. Wait a minute, now, is this up to me now? Grounded and steadfast I must be and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. There's a lot packed in there, but I want you to understand here that this is not this is not a statement that's saying that you can lose your salvation. We've got to be very careful what we're reading and how we understand this. This is speaking to the issue of genuine conversion, though. I can tell you that. Let me read some other statements to put all this in context. 1 Peter 1, verses 4 and 5. Because in that text, Peter says regarding believers that we have an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. I have hung on that phrase so many times in my life. I don't know about you. I know that Jesus is God because I am kept by him, and that's something that's impossible for any human to do, even myself. I can't keep myself in the right place. Can you? You can make promises to God till you're blue in the face and you're going to mess up, right? We all know that we've done that. If we were to bank our eternity on our absolute ability to maintain a perfect Christian life, it would be absolutely impossible. But when Peter wrote that, he's saying, first of all, what I have is incorruptible. What I have is undefilable. What I have does not fade away. What I have is reserved 
But all of that is kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. I place my faith in him. He does the work of keeping me. Aren't you glad for that? That's the power of God. That's why Paul wants these believers to understand your salvation is secure, not because somebody else tells you there's deeper, darker truths you need or that you need to add to your faith certain works that are going to guarantee that you're a Christian. Because what we understand is because he's God, we don't and cannot do other things to keep our faith. It's all God. The issue is. Going back to that first phrase, if indeed you continue, the issue is, are you a true believer? I've always said a genuine believer will always be a believer. Somebody who uh, makes an emotional decision that wasn't anchored in the truth, somebody who uh, wants to be a part of something and maybe that sounds so uh, wonderful to them, so... uh, enjoyable, uh, so peaceful, whatever it might be you can think of that causes someone to say, I want to be a part of that. If that's just an emotional decision, not based on the fact that Jesus Christ is God, which must be at the heart of of even a child's belief. That's why when your children get saved and they pray a prayer for salvation, parents, you need to lock this in. Jesus is God. Because as they grow up, just like this young man who went to Moody, if they don't believe that at the core of their being and they wind up with being challenged about uh, discrepancies that some are going to try to bring up or the fact that Jesus can't be God, he's just a man, he died and so on, and he died on a cross, uh, he didn't rise from the dead, and they start going down that road, they're robbing you of this anchored truth that you're saying you believe in because if you're going to say he saved me, he has to be God. Please make sure your kids know that. That's why Paul, with these new believers, is making sure they understand this. You know the uh, verse in Hebrews 10.39, often used about losing salvation. Hebrews 10.39 says this, But we, believers, we are not of those who draw back to perdition or to, uh, to be destroyed. We're not, we don't draw back to be destroyed. That's a term for judgment. But of those, we are of those who believe to the saving of the soul. But what Paul is really saying is you're either truly saved or you're not. True believers don't draw back. True believers don't throw away their faith. True believers don't, uh, at some junction in their life, say, you know what? I used to believe this, but I don't anymore. That's not a true believer. Please hear me. Now, people want to question that. They can question it all they want. But I'm going back to what the word says. God keeps true believers. And nothing, he says in John chapter 10, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Nothing can change that state in your life. No wonder then, are you ready for this? No wonder we should say sola Christos. That's why I titled this sermon that. Because it's Latin for Christ alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's through Jesus Christ, who is God, his son, and he's the eternal one who has saved us and has has sanctifies us and keeps us. And all that we can uh, understand about him, no one can have Uh, their lost, unregenerate souls changed and saved except by the creator 
Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, the living God. And if you believe that, you will be eternally saved. We call on him to forgive our sins because we know only he can do that. There's no one else. And he's the one who paid that supreme price to make that happen. And he's the only one who can back up the claim by having been resurrected from the dead. And he's the only one who can change your life and give you absolute assurance of eternal life with him by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, who is God, and who died for you. Do you believe that? Those of you who maybe yet are still needing convincing, we don't convince. Only God the Holy Spirit does that. And we're asking him to do that in your life. And that you would, at some point in your life, reason in your own mind what is true. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus God or not? And if you come to the decision that you think he's not God, you will bind your soul for all eternity into destruction and hopelessness. And yet, on the other hand, if you were to say in your heart, I believe he must be who he says he was, and the Spirit of God starts to tweak in your heart and soul to believe the truth, and you pull over to the side of the road or get on your knees before bed or whatever you might do, or even here in this morning service, and you say, I want Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of my soul, to forgive my sins and live in my life. And if you say that in your heart, that's when he moves in and begins the process of keeping you. And nothing will change that. Let's pray for that. Lord, your word is true and good and right. On this Memorial Day, I can't help but think of how many souls died serving our country for a cause, and yet the greatest cause of all, they lost because they did not believe in you. Lord, we can do great things in our life that are commendable and plausible, things that might earn another person's admiration. You've said in your word that if a person would give their lives for someone else, that that's a worthy cause. A friend might give their life for a friend. But most of us would not probably give our lives for known sinners. But the Son of God chose to do that. To come and give your life for us, for me, for those of us in this room, for those listening at home. You've given your life for us because you also knew you could rise from the dead for us and conquer the curse of sin for us. And you could call us to yourself. And those who respond to your call, those who hear your voice and say, yes, you are true and I want you in my life, you then wonderfully place in your hand and no one can change that state. And I am deeply thankful for that, Lord, when I think about my life. And because of that great truth, I even more pledge my own heart and life to you before these listening. I ask that you would do a work in our hearts today, that those of us who call you Lord and Savior, 
would claim that truth today with such a grip, such a faith that how could our lips stay silent? How could our tongues not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the world around us? Lord, in the day we live, the short, seems like a short future ahead. We ask for your mercy and grace in our lives, and I especially ask for those who do not know you today, that they would make a decision to know you, to receive you as Lord before time runs out on their life. We commit our hearts to you. We thank you for the day and the weekend and family and all the things that have been wrapped up in the current day. And so we praise you and ask your blessing as we go. May we walk uh, with steps of victory as children of God, as saints in Christ. And may, Lord, this week be that which allows us to represent you in all kinds of ways to which you are lifted high in our lives and in our world. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. God bless you so much. Have a great rest of the weekend. And uh, we'll see you Wednesday night for our great meal and uh, Bible study. If you're visiting, we're so glad to see you today. And uh, uh, don't leave without letting us know where you're at. All right. God bless you.